0: Well, today, um, I don't know if you guys have been counting. I'm sure you're keeping a very detailed record of this. Uh, Obviously, I had to go back and kind of think through and count this, but this is our 63rd and final lesson in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We started this, I just couldn't believe this, we started this in September of 2015. Like, it's 2017. I couldn't believe it was like the year was 2015 when the first lesson on my little... Date-stamped, uh, you know, app that I use for my notes. Uh, September of two thousand fifteen is when we started. September thirteenth. Um, so we've been at this for a little over a year and a half. And you know, when I first sort of looked at this, I thought, man, that's that's kind of a long time. It, I mean, it seemed like that's I didn't I didn't realize that much time had passed, and it seemed like a long time. But really, when you think about the nature of the Book of Genesis in general, um, and the fact that it actually spans more time than any other book in the Bible. Um, covers more than all the other 65 books of the Bible put together, actually. Approximately 2,400 years. But then obviously when you f- settle in on the first 11 chapters of Genesis that we've been looking at, that spans uh, more than 2,000 years. So the bulk of the span of time that's covered in the book of Genesis That time span is covered in the first 11 chapters. Or another way to look at it is it covers 1,500 miles of geography as well. So there's a large swath of geography that's sort of dealt with. So there's a lot of chronological and geographical territory that's covered that we had to cover, actually, in a relatively short period of time when you look at it that way. And of course, as I've I've said repeatedly, I mean, there's so much that could be said. So much that I don't even think of when I'm studying, and of course, so much content that you could talk about when you look, um, really, at any section of Scripture. But in particular, this section in Genesis one to eleven that we've been looking at for the past year and a half plus. So we've covered a lot of ground, um, and the fact is, is that, and I, I, I think we've elucidated this um, pretty routinely, pretty, pretty consistently. That when you look at the large swath of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's, it's really focused in no small measure on big ideas. That's kind of an interesting way to put it, right? It, it focuses a lot on big ideas, uh, big or you might say sweeping truths that you find in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And and really, when you think about the context and the audience of this this, uh, section of Scripture, the original audience and the time of it, um, it's really intended to shape or form um, kind of an essential framework for what I'm going to call a transcendent, truth-based worldview. Transcendent, truth-based worldview. So that's kind of what we've been dealing with in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Of course, uh, when I say transcendent, I'll just give you sort of some some uh, bullet points from the Merriam-Webster definition of transcendent, um, exceeding unusual limits or surpassing. So when we're talking about a worldview, a transcendent oriented worldview, we're talking about something that is has ex- it, it exceeds usual limits. It it, tr- it surpasses usual limits, or you could say it it extends or lies beyond the limits of ordinary experience. Um, You could also say, this is one of the definitions, it's beyond comprehension. Now, it's not unknowable. We're not dealing with things that are not knowable, but when you think about the grand sweeping plan and purpose of God, especially in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, there's no shortage of information in there that you just kind of go, how how did that work? How, How did that happen? There are things that you just can't possibly know because of its transcendent nature, Um, and because of the God, the transcendent God, uh, whom it is about. Another way to look at it, from the definition from Merriam-Webster, in this transcendent idea, transcending the universe or material existence. So, in Genesis 1-11, you're talking about transcendent ideas that are beyond space and time. You're talking about eternal ideas, or eternal principles, or eternal truths, that are outside time and space. And then the last one that I think is, I think more rubber meets the road kind of definition terms, universally applicable or significant. That's another good way to think about transcendent truth-based worldview. A good way to kind of illustrate this is when you look at Genesis, you see that it's quoted from, in other words, the book of Genesis is quoted from over 200 times in the New Testament. So it's its value or its content or its transcendent applicable across time spans is is evidenced by the mere fact of how often it's referenced in the new testament chapters 1 through 11 in fact are quoted more than 100 times in the new testament and if you and if you if you look at it closely you'll see that that over 165 times it's quoted word for word in the new testament so we're talking about Timeless, transcendent information here. It's not only transcendent, but I also use the term truth-based. And here's, here's what I mean by that. It's, it's sourced in ultimate, objective reality. So when we talk about this worldview and what Genesis 1-11 to does to help shape this transcendent, truth-based worldview, we're talking about the fact that it's sourced in what is ultimate, objective reality. Now, if you consult uh, philosophy, then you, would, you might say that the closest uh, equivalent to this idea of truth-based uh, worldview information or the fact that it's sourced in objective or ultimate reality, the philosophers might use the term absolute truth as a concept, a philosophical idea, this idea of absolute truth. It might be defined as inflexible reality, or fixed, invariable, unalterable facts. Now, this is in contrast to a relativistic philosophical idea, or a relativistic philosophy, things that are moving and you can't really pin them down. To give you an idea of this antithesis to absolute truth, or ultimate truth, or objective truth or reality, um, you can look at humanist uh, philosopher and an educator and uh, political commentator of, of a past time, John Dewey. He, uh, he was a co-author of the Humanist Manifesto, so he was very much into humanism and, and uh, uh, behavioralism and those kinds of things. He said this in support of relativism as opposed to absolute truth. He says this in this manifesto. He says, There is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed, natural, or moral absolutes. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like a series of absolute truth statements declaring that there are no absolute truths? And that's always what you find. Is you find that people who would deny the existence of transcendent, truth-based reality, immovable, transcendent, eternal, fixed reality, when they decry the existence of that, they are thereby borrowing from that worldview to make their statements. And this, this quote from John Dewey is a great... Example of that. So when we're talking about this truth-based worldview, we're talking really about revealed truth. We're talking about biblical truth. We're not just talking about a philosophical idea of absolute truth versus relativistic thinking. We're actually talking about something more specific than that. It's revealed truth. It's biblical truth. It's truth that is revealed by God, who is himself, the inflexible reality, the fixed, invariable, unalterable fact, to borrow from the philosophical idea. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about how Genesis 1 to 11 helps shape in us, frame up for us a worldview that is both transcendent and truth based. And you see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. It just starts with that unalterable, fixed reality. That's where Genesis begins. It begins with that fixed point of revealed truth, God Himself. You can go on and you can see in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is asking God, who should I tell the people that sent me? Or who should I tell Pharaoh sent me to say, let the people go? And what does God say other than, I am who I am? Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. That, that's what Genesis 1-11 reveals, this, this eternal transcendent God, this fixed, invariable, unalterable fact, this inflexible reality. This is, this is biblical truth. This is a truth-based worldview that Genesis 1-11 lays out. It's immutable as God is immutable. James 1.17 describes God as the Father of lights, in whom or with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God himself is this fixed reality that we found in Genesis 1-11. So again, when we're talking about Genesis 1-11, I thought it would be helpful, but since, we're, since we, we see that it really, it really reveals to us these sweeping truths, that are intended to sort of help frame up for us a transcendent, truth-based worldview. For the people of Israel about to enter into the promised land, what what should they know? How should they think? How should they respond? How should they engage the, the people and the cultures around them? I mean, th- this, is, this is big thinking kind of truth that's being revealed in Genesis 1-11. to So it's big ideas, but... Again, I want to emphasize, it's not to say that there's no details that we didn't look at. Obviously, we looked at a lot of details in Genesis 1-11. Critically important details, very specific details. Um, I mean, our walk, to say that Genesis 1-11 is just about big ideas, you know, Genesis chapter 1 would betray that idea, right? Because you walk through basically God's day planner, you know, day 1, day 2, day 3, and you get this, this detailed description of God's creation of the world and the universe in six days. And of course, all throughout Genesis 1-11, we're introduced to specific people, specific places, specific conversations, specific attitudes even, uh, achievements, even measurements. Remember the story of the ark? You can't get too much more specific than that when you're starting to kind of come up with a plan for how to build an ark and you're given measurements in cubits and so forth. So, Again, Genesis 1-11, to big ideas, big sweeping ideas, but still plenty of critical, important detail. But the fact is, is that those details oftentimes primarily serve the purpose of highlighting or illustrating or elucidating the big idea, the big principle, the big worldview component that is being emphasized. So I thought that as a way to kind of put a bow on this, Kind of wrap this whole thing up today. I thought of just trying to kind of highlight a few of these big ideas, and of course, I'm not going to come close to capturing all of them. There are 10, 15, 20 more that you could come up with. I mean, and, and feel free to chime in. I'm sure that that we might even come up with some ways to refine the, the things that I'm going to say, and, and actually come up with a, a different um, angle to a sweeping big idea about this. This framework of a worldview that's being revealed in Genesis chapters one through eleven, but I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of step back from the large sweep of these eleven chapters and just pull out a few big worldview type of ideas that we have seen that really transcend Genesis one through eleven. They, they, they—you see them all throughout Scripture, and you see them all throughout human history, and you see them all throughout man's experience of life on this planet. So these are big, transcendent ideas. So let's start with the first one. Here's what I came up with, okay? We saw in Genesis 1-11 that life is always and for everyone. Always and for everyone lived in reference to God. Always. Always. It's always, and for everyone, lived in reference to God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about the grand scope of creation, it begins, like I've already said, in the beginning, God. So, the first reference point that you have in Genesis, in the narrative of creation, in this beginning of the beginning, you have God as being set out as the primary principle reference point for all the rest of existence, for all the rest of Creation. In the beginning, God. And then, if you even just skip over and go to where we ended up last week, where you go to this pivot point in the narrative of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that that pivot point where you start going into a more narrow scope of God's redemptive plan and the, the promised Abraham and the patriarchal history that will unfold and take us all the way into the New Testament and the New Covenant and the coming of Christ and on into the rest of Scripture... That pivot point in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, again, God is the reference point here. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is the constant reference point. Constant reference point. And whether this fact of God being the constant reference point, whether it's known or unknown, whether it's believed or disbelieved, whether it's accepted or rejected, whether it's celebrated or whether it's mocked, it is this unchanging reality. Genesis 1-11 constantly puts that in front of us, over and over again. God, life is lived in reference to God. Again, when you're talking about thinking about a worldview, how you see and experience and understand and interpret reality and thereby make decisions about life and, and family and work and all the practical ways that life plays out, to not think that you're living your life in reference to God is to deny reality. Life in its biggest or its smallest detail is lived in reference to God whether we know it whether we're aware of it whether we believe it or not that is the big truth that we see coming forward in Genesis 1 to 11 without question this is the truth that is either a point of immense blessing or it's a truth by which we are crushed one or the other that we live life in reference to God it's never something that we're unaffected by. Let's put it that way. Everybody is affected by God as the ultimate reference point for all of existence in life. And if you think about it, this, this truth or this principle, this really sits at the core of the, create, the creator-creature distinction, right? We, we are created beings. There is a creator. We were created By someone who is above us, who is other than us. Colossians, the Apostle Paul would say it this way in Colossians. He is the image, speaking of really Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. God is the reference point for all of life. Even even the Apostle Paul, when he's witnessing to the Stoics and philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens, right? I mean, we're talking about unbelievers. We're talking about people who are wrapped up in really a certain idolatry, the idol of their own minds, their own ability to think, or in actual idol worship of the day. And he's witnessing to them, and he's telling them of this God this unknown God, he references obviously this statue among the many statues, among the many idols in their midst, and he says this, he quotes from one of their known poets by saying, in reference to actual, to the actual creator God, in Him we live and move and have our being. And he's making that statement not to people who are redeemed and in Christ and filled with the Spirit, he's making it to just... I don't care who you are. That is at the core of this creature, the creator-creature distinction, that in him we live and move and have our being because God is the ultimate reference point for everyone always, all of life. So the principle here, for me anyway, I think a good takeaway is that an accurate rule view always begins with God. And so the converse of that is going to be true as well. A worldview that does not begin with God is not going to be an accurate worldview. It is going to be a flawed worldview. Now, we'll take you back to some of our early studies when we talked about presuppositions. Do you remember that? Everybody has a starting point, a framework of thinking and articulating their beliefs and what they say is true or not true. They They have... presupposed ideas or conclusions or convictions. Everybody does. No one comes to those kinds of discussions or arguments neutral without some preformed notion or way of thinking and looking at things. Well, this is the point. We need to have God as our ultimate presupposition. And His word and His truth and how He's revealed Himself and His character and His nature and His plan and His purposes. God is the starting point. He is the beginning point for an accurate worldview. And Genesis 1-11 to makes that clear over and over again. What do you see rolling out in Genesis 1-11 to over and over again? Those who stray away from that fundamental principle are crushed by that reference point, ultimately. That very reference point that they deny, they become crushed by. This really is This really is the fundamental, overarching truth that we see in all of Scripture, really, but in Genesis 1-11 in some profound ways. Well, big idea number two. Big idea number one, God is the ultimate reference point, always and for everyone. Number two, the great divide running throughout human history is the ongoing debate over who gets to be God. That's the great divide, this debate over who gets to be God. Now, I take you back to Genesis chapter 3. That's what was at the core of that debate in the garden. Who who gets to be God here? Not, not Not in an actual sense, right? We're not talking about who actually gets to be God. We're talking about who gets to claim that they are God. Who gets to ascend that... That throne that's the dividing point. That, that, that serves as the great divide throughout all of human history, this, this question, this debate over who gets to be God. The, 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 the serpent, Satan himself, in the form of the serpent, says that you do know that if you eat of this fruit that you'll be like God. God does not want you to know God does not want you to know what he knows. He's keeping something from you. And the appeal of that is what chases man throughout his existence and throughout history. Who gets to be God? And so it comes down to this. When you put this in the category of worldview, what shapes your way of seeing things and interpreting life and reality and and making decisions and going about your day, when you put it into that context, it's either that God defines Himself Or man defines himself as God. Or man defines God in a way that resembles himself. So even when man feigns some reference to God, it is not uncommon for man to have a God in view of his own making, right? A God, we talked about this, a God that is accessible to us. I heard yesterday... This statement from, in a sermon. And, and I don't even think that the person who said it knows exactly the implications of what they were saying. But, but this was the gist of the statement. I want us to make sure, I'm paraphrasing this until I get to the last part, okay? It was, this is the general idea. I want us to make sure that we are serving people well here at our church Because we never know if this day might be the day that this is them giving God his last chance. This may be the day that this person's giving God his last chance. Now that kind of language, I think I know what is meant by that. And I think that if I press this person, they would not say that they mean really what that means on the face of it, that somehow we get to give God a chance? I mean, just the, the, the sheer locution of that sentence, the sheer forming of those words together in that order is totally counter to what you see in the, on the pages of Scripture, and in particular in Genesis 1-11. There is nowhere where you will find any reference to God that, listen, just give Him one more chance. Just, just just one more chance to, to make your life what you think it should be, but that is what that, that feeds this this subtle and oftentimes not so subtle form of idolatry that says, "I want to love God as long as He fits into the shape or the frame that makes me feel good about me and my life and my future, and is a balm for all my hurts." So when it comes to this great divide, this debate over who gets to be God, like I said, it's either God's defining himself and man is is receiving that that revelation of who God is and bowing down in worship, submitting in obedience, walking faithfully, repenting routinely. I mean, it's it's just a, a you are God. You define who you are. You tell us what you're like. You, you declare what you expect. You are God. Either it's that, or it's man defining himself as God and thereby out and out denying God. In other words, you could say people who would think that reason is the ultimate reality, man's ability to reason. That my, my judgment and my reason is God. I, if I think it's true, if you can convince me that God is who he says he is, then I might believe. But until then, forget it. Why? Because my reason, my rational faculties, that's, that's, that's the authority. Man makes himself God. Or, man defines God in a way that just, is just a resemblance of himself, which is just a, another form of idolatry. So he doesn't deny God out and out, he just denies the true God and how he's revealed himself in Scripture. I'm cer- I'm certain that's that's a, a a tripping point for us that we you know maybe in our in a sincere effort to to understand who God is we fall short in that in those estimations but I, I do think that what I'm really more referring to is not sincere efforts to grow and understand and know God it's the effort it's the more the efforts that that um, pick and choose attributes of God that that suit them. And maybe they find those attributes revealed in scripture or maybe they find them revealed by someone that they look up to that has taken scripture and kind of reshaped it. I mean, who knows what what may have happened along the way. But I'm really just talking about that that danger of 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 just picking and choosing the things about God that you think are pleasing to you. And that's the God that, that that's the totality of the God that you worship. That's I'm just thinking, before I uh, adhered to the, to the Reformed faith, it just didn't seem fair to me that mm-hmm. God chose some but not others. Yes. And I believe that we made the choice. Yes. No, and scripture just told me it's not so. Right. But, but I, when I talk to people who are not of the Reformed faith, they're just trying to make a god they can understand. Yeah, and so I think you're tapping into an important point that's worth inserting here, um, and that is that that I wouldn't want to um, I wouldn't want to eliminate room for people who are who are trying to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, but not hitting the mark all the time like all of us aren't, right? I mean, I, I think that that's an important point to make. So, so it's not to say that I would want to categorize someone who might not fully embrace. All the attributes of God, or, or, or elements of God's character, or plan, or purposes, um, fully. I wouldn't want to categorize them as being idolatrous. That's a that's a bridge too far. They're sincere people who just don't fully understand or, or have trouble embracing certain elements or whatever. I mean, I, and that's that's a fair point, an important point. I'm really talking about more of the intentional efforts to press God down and to. Something else. But if you think about Genesis 1 11, just getting back to kind of the, 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 the text that we've been in, I'm going to just give you a couple of examples. I mean, you could start with the unacceptable worship of Cain. And that might be one example where there was something about that that was unacceptable and less than honoring to the Lord. And what did Cain do with that? Cain had an opportunity to repent to make things right. God came to Cain and even said, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. So there was, there was routine, uh, there, was, there was multiple opportunities for Cain to, to repent and make that right, and of course, he didn't. And then you have the Tower of Babel, the most recent example, where people trying to kind of make God into something that they, they can ascend to, basically in their own form of worship, in their own construction process, if you will, what they make and manufacture and produce. That will be the object of their worship. Their examples obviously replete throughout Scripture and throughout human history. But Genesis 1-11 highlights this fact over and over again, that, that this debate between who, about who gets to be God is, is always on the table. It's always on the table. And so the takeaway here is an accurate worldview. An accurate worldview includes an acceptance of who God is in his fullness as he's revealed himself. Well, the last big idea I would put before us is this. This is a little more wordy, so bear with me. God's amazing plan of redemption puts the beauty, wonder, and power of His nature on full display to the eternal praise of His glory, the eternal blessing of His chosen people, and the eternal judgment of His enemies. You guys got that memorized now? That's a little more wordy. Let me say it again. God's amazing plan of redemption puts the beauty, wonder, and power of His nature on full display to the eternal praise of His glory, the eternal blessing of His chosen people, and the eternal judgment of his enemies. In other words, what we see running throughout Genesis 1-11 through is that God has a plan. He is executing that plan. And even in the face of periods of history, or times, or decisions of men, where it looks like God's plan has been thwarted, or God has fled the scene, or God is nowhere to be found, you see God continuing to move his plan forward, and move his plan forward, and move his plan forward. And of course we see that throughout the pages of Scripture, and you have seen that in your own life as well, right? God's plan, not only is it unstoppable and flawless, but it reveals His nature and His character. Remember how we talked about multiple times where you see these points where God is stepping in to execute some form of judgment, but even in the midst of that, there is grace. In the garden, you see judgment and grace in the same account. Perfect example of that. Where God's plan of redemption, it puts His nature on full display. You can't really fully appreciate, we talked about this recently, you can't fully appreciate and understand and, and celebrate and stand in awe of the amazing grace of God if you don't have some understanding or awareness or recognition of the wrath and judgment of God against sin. Against your sin and my sin. That ultimately, for those who are, who are in Christ, fell upon Christ Himself on the cross, right? I mean, you can't fully worship God for His amazing, wonderful grace without recognizing and having some understanding some awareness, some deep penetrating knowledge that he is a judge of sin and wickedness. And his wrath is poured out against all ungodliness. And so in Genesis 1-11, what do we see on display in massive scale? Judgment and rescue. You see unprecedented judgment in the flood, for example. And in the midst of that, you see grace and rescue being manifested. His plan of redemption puts the beauty and wonder and power of his nature on full display. And it should elicit praise to his glory. It results in blessing to those who are his. And it results in ultimate judgment of those who are his enemies. And like I said, it's an unstoppable plan. It is a flawless plan, even in the mess of how we experience it, right? I mean, when we experience the plan of God working out, it looks like a big, giant mess oftentimes. Why else do you have people say things like, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? Because they're looking around and saying, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is all powerful and God is all good, why is everything an absolute mess around me? Why am I experiencing such hardship and pain? So that leads people to be, then to, to doubt that God is actually in control or that God is actually good or that God actually cares. It causes people to doubt the very nature and character of God. But if you really look at the Genesis 1-11 through account, what you see hand in hand, you see God continuing to reveal His plan even in and through the absolute mess of sinful humanity. And even through that, His nature, His wondrous attributes, His power, His goodness, His grace, His love, His kindness is shed abroad amongst the people of God in and through all of that. His plan puts all of that on full display for us to wonder at, to celebrate, to stand in awe of. It is a plan, I'll close with this, it is a plan that magnifies the wisdom of a just and gracious God and exposes the folly of sinful, rebellious men. It does both. It magnifies God. It magnifies God in all of His justice and in all of His grace. But it also exposes the absolute folly of man in His sinfulness and rebellion. Proverbs 1.7 says this, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom." Instruction. That dichotomy, that line is drawn, and God's plan separates wisdom from folly, over and over and over again. Genesis 1 to 11 is no exception to revealing that. So, next up, where are we going from here? Well, guess what? We're going to Proverbs. I made a decision. We're going to go to Proverbs. We're going to do a study in Proverbs. I'm not sure exactly how in-depth we'll go, but um, I don't know about you, but I've been, um, I've been kind of, and this is not new, of course, but um, just the need for discernment in our day, um, the need for believers to be very, very discerning, to be very, very wise, to have really good judgment, um, and to be growing in that. I see as something that I I desperately need. I I think you probably would say you you need it too. I mean I think we could agree with that. So I just want to spend some time in Proverbs and just settle into some wisdom literature from Scripture and see what God might do to, to continue to shape in us um, discernment and good judgment. The fact of the matter is is that the further along in life you go and the more um, types of relationships and engagements that you have, what you find happening over and over again is that you're not having to necessarily make decisions that are absolutely explicit in terms of the guidance that you get from Scripture. right? You're not, you're not able to say, okay, I have this complicated relationship conflict on my hands that I'm involved in that, that I really want to walk through in a God-honoring way And there are guiding principles of kindness and grace and bearing one another's burdens. And there's all kinds of relationship principles that you can point to. But there are layers of complexity and difficulty associated with this conflict. That at the end of the day, what you need is this overarching thing for all of us is wisdom and good sound judgment. To make a good call. Right? So I just, I think it would be fun and helpful for me. And this is largely why I do this, because I need help. I don't, I don't know if you know, know that, but the only reason why I want to teach is because I need to be able to study because I need the help. And you guys just kind of get the benefit of hearing me try to tell you what I'm trying to tell myself over and over again. That's basically what's going on here. But, um, but I think it would be a great, uh, a great time for us to spend, um, I'm not sure how long, in Proverbs seeking the Lord's wisdom. So, Any final questions or comments or thoughts? Any big ideas you want to throw out from Genesis 1 to 11? I appreciated today's wrap-up. I think it was very well done. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Well, let's pray. And we'll be dismissed.